The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today I am honored to welcome Dr. Robert Lustig. He is an internationally renowned pediatric endocrinologist who has spent nearly 20 years studying and treating childhood obesity and the effects of sugar on the central nervous system, metabolism, and disease. He is the director of the Weight Assessment for Teen and Child Health Program at University of California, San Francisco's Children's Hospital and a member of the University of California, San Francisco Center for Obesity Assessment, Study, and Treatment. He is also a member of the Obesity Task Force of the Endocrine Society. You may be familiar with his notorious video. It's on YouTube. It's called Sugar, the Bitter Truth, and I highly recommend that. Or you may have seen him featured in the just-released movie on video, Fed Up. And I believe it was just released on DVD September 8th. So, Dr. Lustig, welcome. And I want to feature the book that you have authored titled Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. And my first question to you is, why this title? (laughs) Well, the title's a double entendre, of course. You know, Fat Chance, you can do anything about it because they won't let you do anything about it. Or... If you're fat, this is your chance to actually be able to make inroads in terms of improving your own health. So the title went both ways. You know, those are always most engaging titles, and so far so good. That's right. Well, I have to say that one of the first tenets of this book, and one that I think I'd like to spend some time on, is the fact that a calorie is not a calorie. And I want to give our listeners just a little caveat here, and that is that because I am a member of the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, you should know that we as dietitians are trained to think that way. That's often the message that we're told to give our clients. And you may have heard dietitians say that, calories in versus calories out. And all the time. All the time. And it's very frustrating. And you have to wonder who owns that message, right? So why do you find a calorie is not a calorie to be one of the most important messages we can give the public? Right. So basically the uh, concept of a calorie calorie says that all calories are fungible. That is, if you eat more than you burn, you will gain weight. If you eat less than you burn, you will lose weight, except for one thing. It isn't so, and there are no data that actually support that contention. If that were true, for instance, exercise would promote weight loss. If anything, actually, exercise has been shown to promote weight gain because it promotes muscle gain. So the point is, none of the empiric data actually support this notion. It's a, quote, common sense notion. But let's go ahead and take that apart for a moment. We do this actually in the movie Fed Up. Let's do that for a moment. Let's take 160 calories in almonds. You eat 160 calories in almonds. How many of those calories do you absorb? Turns out the answer is 130. What happened to the other 30? The fiber in the almonds, both the insoluble and soluble fiber in the almonds, formed a gel on the inside of your intestine. You can actually see it on electron microscopy. It's this whitish gel that acts as a secondary barrier. And so you do not absorb the glucose and the 
fatty acids within the almonds early up in the duodenum, they are transported further down the intestine. And that's where the intestinal bacteria are. And the intestinal bacteria chew up the other 30. So you ate 160, but you only absorbed 130. The other 30 were chewed up by your intestinal bacteria called your microbiome. And we now know how important having the right bacteria in your microbiome is in terms of avoiding disease. Mm-hmm. So if you ate 160 and you only absorbed 130, how can a calorie be a calorie? Because you measured 160, but that's not what you got because a calorie is not a calorie. Let's take protein. So turns out in order to turn protein into energy, your liver has to deamidate the amino acids, and then they become alpha-ketoglutarate and then go into the Krebs cycle. It costs twice as much energy to turn an amino acid into uh, an energy substrate for the Krebs cycle as it does a carbohydrate to become a substrate for the Krebs cycle. So you have to spend energy on protein as opposed to on carbohydrate because a calorie is not a calorie. Let's take fatty acids. So we have trans fats, which are the devil incarnate and will kill you, and we have omega-3s, which are heart-healthy and will save your life. They're both nine calories per gram when you burn them in a calorimeter, and one will save your life and the other one will kill you because a calorie is not a calorie. And then finally, the big kahuna, the one that I've spent my research on and the one that is the most actionable item on the dietary hit list, if you will, fructose versus glucose. So glucose is the energy of life. Every cell on the planet can metabolize glucose for energy. Glucose is so important that if you don't consume it, your body will make it. Now, that doesn't make it essential. It makes it a nutrient, but it doesn't make it essential because your body can make it. People say, oh, you have to consume sugar. It's essential garbage. Absolutely not true. Yes, you need glucose, but your body will make it, so it is not essential. Conversely, fructose, the sweet molecule in sugar, is metabolized only in the liver, not by every cell in the body. And when you overwhelm your liver's capacity to be able to metabolize fructose, your liver has no choice but to turn the excess, the rest of it, into liver fat, which then drives insulin resistance, which drives hyperinsulinemia, which drives energy deposition and weight gain, and all the chronic metabolic diseases we associate with the metabolic syndrome. So glucose and fructose are not metabolized the same. Therefore, a calorie is not a calorie. Yet, if you talk with the standard dietetic mafia, if you will, they will tell you that a calorie is a calorie. And the question is, if there's this thing called nutritional biochemistry, how can they possibly believe that? Mm -hmm. Well, I'm really glad you brought this issue up because I thought one of the points you made in your book that was, to me, a key point was that what every successful diet has in common is a restriction of sugar. And And an increase in fiber. And an increase in fiber, exactly. Now, here's the conundrum that consumers face in the marketplace, especially if you're living in a low-income community, and that is, and it's a challenge from the Fed Up movie, and that is, okay, try to take sugar out of your diet. So I believe in the movie Fed Up, it's mentioned that there are 100,000 food products on the shelf. 80% of those contain some form of sugar. Added sugar. Added sugar, correct. Added sugar. So what is the consumer to do when, you know, we're told, well, you know, if you're overweight, you're just not making the right choices. 
when in fact we don't have choices available to so many of us that are not that don't contain the sugar. The fact of the matter is, personal responsibility, that is free choice, the choice to you know, be able to determine what you eat and how much you eat, etc., is predicated on four precepts. The first is knowledge. You have to have knowledge. Well, we're kept from the knowledge because there are 56 names for sugar. The food industry uses them all, and we're not allowed to know how much they added because it doesn't say so on the label. It only says total sugars, not added sugars. Second, access. How can you exercise personal responsibility if you don't have access to real food when you only have processed food or convenience foods at the local convenience store when there aren't even supermarkets in lower-income neighborhoods? Third, affordability. You have to be able to afford your choice, and society has to be able to afford your choice. Well, right now, we can't afford everyone's choice because insurance companies have to pay $2,750 per employee for obesity-related health care services, whether the employee is obese or not, and that's reducing productivity and employment all over America. We can't afford our choice. And then finally, your choice can't hurt anyone else. But in fact, your choice does hurt everyone else because that's why we have this healthcare crisis and that's why we have this economic crisis. So the four precepts of personal responsibility are not met. And the reason is because we don't have a choice. Because all of the food that we are exposed to is in fact polluted with added sugar. And a perfect example of that is the National School Lunch and the National School Breakfast Program. Let's talk about the National School Breakfast Program for a moment. Good. 25% of the U.S. pediatric population is enrolled in the National School Breakfast Program. Well, what's a standard breakfast? A bowl of Fruit Loops and a glass of orange juice. That's 11 teaspoons of added sugar. The American Heart Association says that for children, four teaspoons of added sugar is the maximum for an entire day. And this is only breakfast. So if this is what our kids are eating, and this is what we make available to them, and this is what we say we can afford, and they don't have a choice as to what they eat, how can it be personal responsibility? How can it be anything but a toxic food environment? Mm -hmm. That's what we have. You know, you mentioned not having the added sugars on the food label, and I was recently involved in a conversation on LinkedIn, one of the LinkedIn groups, and there was a gentleman on the in the story or the conversation, the thread, and he said, we don't need added sugar on the labels. It's just going to confuse consumers. And he was, of course, working for the food industry. He was into strategic communication. But isn't it interesting that the, it's fascinating to hear how the industry responds to the request for simple information to keep consumers informed. I know that they're going to be redoing the food labels. I am lobbying for added sugar. I'm sure you are, too. Oh, absolutely. We've written several letters. Uh, there have been an enormous uh, number of letters that were written in the comment period for the new food label. Uh, I participated uh, at several levels in this. Uh, the question, of course, is what's going to happen. The big issue, though, is not just that added sugars will be added to the food label. The big issue is one that's not being uh, contested right now, and that is how much is too much. You know, we have dietary reference intakes for every single thing on the food label, except added sugar, except any sugar. 
There's no number. There's no percent daily value. There's no RDA, recommended dietary allowance. Why not? There is for cholesterol. There is for fat. There is for sodium. There is for everything except for sugar. Now, the Food and Drug Administration says, well, we don't have an upper limit, you know. Uh, we don't put upper limits, and that's not true because they put an upper limit for sodium. Right. So they are not being completely truthful. And I think the reason is because the food industry is really in charge here. Yeah. They don't want you to know how much is too much. Because to be honest with you, if we knew how much was too much, breakfast cereal would disappear from the planet in about a nanosecond. Yeah, that's right. And I really like to use those American Heart Association recommendations on added teaspoons of sugar because it really brings to light just how much added sugar is entering into the diet. Now, you do have on page 18, you've got some of the ancient pyramids and the choose my plate, as if any of these things really made a difference. You know, I mean, being someone... Every one of these dietary schedules or diagrams is fraught with difficulty, and it really doesn't matter what you say. It matters what people eat, and that is dependent on what you give them availability to. I might also mention, you mentioned the American Heart Association. I helped write those guidelines and basically, if you believe the American Heart Association, it would come in at about 8% of total caloric intake would be added sugars. Well, the World Health Organization just came in at 5% of total calories. Mm-hmm. And that was just sanctioned and agreed to by the Scientific Advisory Committee on Nutrition in, in the UK. That's our, our, their version of our Dietary Guidelines Committee. Mm-hmm. So we have people who now recognize that added sugar is a problem, and the United States Food and Drug Administration is not listening to them. Listeners, if you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Robert Lustig. He has spent nearly two decades treating childhood obesity and studying the effects of sugar on the central nervous system and metabolism, and he is the author of a book called Fat Chance, which we're talking about right now. You may have been familiar with his YouTube video called Sugar, the Bitter Truth. I highly recommend that, and he is also featured in the new movie Fed Up. You know, I want to talk about something that you bring up in the book, and that is this idea of addiction. And, of course, people argue about this back and forth. Is food addictive? Why or why not? And I think that your explanation of food addiction in the book is very interesting, and I'd like for you to help our listeners understand where that comes from. Where do we get the idea that food is addictive? Well, food is necessary. Food is survival. But There are lots of foods that are, shall we say, more palatable and pleasurable than others. I mean, which would you rather have, a bowl of salad or a a piece of chocolate cake? There's clearly different levels of pleasurability and palatability that go with food. The issue is that there are many things that can stimulate the reward center of the brain. Most of them are substances. Most of them, for instance, cocaine, amphetamine, morphine, heroin, etc., nicotine, these uh, alcohol. These are all substances that can influence the reward center. And every single substance that influences the reward center also has a capacity for addiction. So every one of those substances I just mentioned has an addictive behavior pattern that goes along with it. Well, turns out sugar stimulates that exact same reward system in exactly the same way. 
And what has also been shown is that when you stimulate that reward center, you get pleasure. That's true. But the neurotransmitter that does the stimulating and does the rewarding, which is called dopamine, the receptors for dopamine downregulate. Every time you get a hit, your receptors go down, which means that the next time you need a bigger hit to get the same level of reward. And so what you end up in is a vicious cycle of consumption, reward, and downregulation so that finally, by the end of three weeks, you've got to take a huge hit to get almost no benefit or reward. And that's the phenomenon of tolerance. Mm -hmm. And it has been shown very clearly that sugar causes tolerance. Mm -hmm. Now, the second part of addiction is withdrawal. And the big question is, does sugar cause withdrawal? Well, we absolutely know that the main line mechanism for obtaining sugar, if you're a sugar addict, is soda. And soda usually comes with caffeine. And so everyone knows that when you have caffeine withdrawal or soda withdrawal, you get all of the symptoms of, of withdrawal. That is, the headaches, the jitteriness, the sleeplessness, etc. But we haven't yet determined if when you come off soda, is it due to the caffeine withdrawal, the sugar withdrawal, or both? So the question of withdrawal is still one that hasn't been finalized. And so there are still many people who will argue that sugar is not addictive. The data actually support that it is weakly addictive, kind uh, of like alcohol. Well, I thought it was interesting because you identified four criteria that the public health community has identified to justify the regulation of a substance, and those would be unavoidability, toxicity, abuse, and cost to society. And that really leads us to this, whether or not we look to the government to protect us from substances in our environment that are causing us harm. Right. Basically, the market should regulate itself, except when it can't. And when it can't, that's why we have elected officials, is to step in when the market can't do its job. And it turns out that for every addictive substance, the market can't do its job. That's why they're addictive. Every one of those, the market basically does not work. You end up paying more and more for less and less because there's price gouging on any substance that's addictive. That's sort of the way it goes. And that's why you have regulation of various foodstuffs and the regulation of various uh, things like gasoline, etc. The bottom line is, if sugar is addictive, which it clearly seems to be, and the food industry is using it to increase consumption and causing disease in the process, how do you expect the market to regulate itself? That's where elected officials come in. And that's where we think the rubber hits the road in terms of this issue. Mm -hmm. The four criteria, as you mentioned, are ubiquity, well, we've got that, toxicity, we've proven that, abuse, I've just discussed it, and finally, negative impact on society. And there's no question that our sugar glut has had a negative impact on society, both economically, socially, in terms of devolution, uh, reduced test scores, and possibly even violence. Mm -hmm. Bottom line, you know, I thought we need it, to do something. Yeah, and you know, I thought it was interesting. You have former President Reagan's quote on the top of one of your chapters: "Government is not." the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. 
And I find that quote to be so objectionable because what it does is it turns us away from recognizing that we are the government. And I also thought that one of your comments in the book about you know the fact that you're a physician and you took an oath that said first do no harm, and you recognize that doing nothing is causing harm. So I want to blend that with the policy piece and see how you might want to intervene. Well, <laughs> you've brought a lot of different questions all together, you know, sort of under one roof here. Um, the fact is that we're in this boat because of government, to some extent. We're in this boat because of government subsidies. The fact of the matter is that the sugar subsidy is the second oldest piece of legislation in the history of our union. It dates back to 1790. You know, we have been supporting sugar tariffs to keep out foreign sugar to let our, the American farmer and the American sugar producer have a more free reign since 1790. So we have had propped up price supports. We also now have the corn subsidy, which has made high fructose corn syrup basically dirt cheap. So to some extent, the fact that sugar got cheap is in part because of government. And so the question is, can government giveth what government has taken away? And the answer is, if the policies are well thought out, and if they are yoked to both carrot and stick that both work at the same time, for the benefit of society rather than the benefit of individuals' pockets, whether those be politicians or the food industry themselves, yes, they can. Now, there are some people who mistrust government completely and say, keep government out of my kitchen. You know, I don't want government in my kitchen either unless there's a uh, more destructive force already there. Well, in fact, that's exactly what we have. We have a food industry that is way more destructive. And so the question is, can we as a society come up with rational carrots and sticks, rational subsidization and taxing that can work at the same time to actually reduce our burden of chronic metabolic disease? And the answer is, there is no doubt in my mind that that could be done or can be done. The question is, will it be done? And that depends on a lot of different moving parts working together in concert. Right now, we're not even on the same page as to what the problem is. That's true. You know, I remember looking at schools and how they would form these relationships with fast food especially McDonald's, they have the McTeacher Night where the children are encouraged to go to McDonald's and the school gets a percentage of sales. And I was doing a story on it and I called one of the schools that had received a sum of money that was enough for them to have a playground. And when I spoke to the person in charge of the program, I said, you know, this is really hurting kids. It's contributing to obesity. And there were no policies, of course, in the, in the state or school district to deny that kind of activity. And she said, oh, we're so grateful for the program because if we didn't do this, we wouldn't have a new playground. Yep, I understand. Listen, I just went to my daughter's soccer league general meeting to find out that the soccer league had teamed up with Gatorade. Uh-huh. How do you think that made me feel? <laughs> oh, I know how it made you feel. <laughs> Yeah, and are you the lone voice oftentimes fighting Well, let's put it this way. A lot of people are getting it. A lot of people are understanding that this is a problem. The medical community is slowly but surely turning its juggernaut around from this notion of a calorie is a calorie 
too, the fact is that, you know, it's really about energy deposition, not about energy balance. And getting the insulin down, that is, the hormone that drives energy into fat cells, and sugar and refined carbohydrate being the most egregious of the various things that make insulin go up. So we're starting to see some movement in the medical community. We're starting to see some movement in some populations. I mean, like, look at Mexico. Mexico, they don't even have potable water, yet they passed a soda tax, a national soda tax. And the reason they were able to do it was because they yoked the tax to the improvement of the entire national water supply. And that makes perfect sense. You know, basically get the food industry to help pay for an improvement of the water supply. So they were able to do that because of, you know, a rational policy of both carrot and stick. We could do the same here in the United States. For instance, give you an example. We could subsidize whole milk and tax chocolate milk. Or we could subsidize regular milk and tax sugar-sweetened beverages in schools. We could do that. The point is, at this moment in time, people have not yet put together the link between the sugar-sweetened beverages and the chronic metabolic diseases such as type 2 diabetes, heart disease, cancer, dementia. The data are there, but the messaging as to the fact that this is causative is still very early. Mm -hmm. Uh, I expect this will take another 5 to 10 years for the general public to recognize that this is hurting them directly, Mm -hmm. and then they'll demand change. Well, as your send-off in the book says, public outcry is a powerful force for change. And the reason why I wanted you to be my guest was to help all of us feel the way the new DVD or the new movie, the title of that, which is Fed Up. I think we're all fed up. So could you, in the last minute, give our listeners a send-off charge? (laughs) A charge. A charge. (laughs) A charge. You know, the bottom line here is that we, as a society, are responsible for each other. Now, there are some people who say that's not true, that we are not. We are all alone. And that's not what a society is. In fact, a society is responsible for each other. We have lost an entire generation of children. And the fact is, we will lose a second generation if we do nothing. We are responsible for that generation. Everyone's saying we want to see America flourish. Well, we are doing anything but right now. There are a lot of problems in America, but this one is one that is actionable today. It is actionable this moment. And we have cause and effect. And don't let anybody tell you we don't. We do. They're doing their best to obfuscate it, but it is there. So the issue is, do we rein in this uh, libertarian uh, streak that we have that says, keep government out of my kitchen long enough to actually see some benefit on the back end because of the actions we took in the 2000 teens that will ultimately translate into a better life for our children in the 2020s and 30s. Uh, I hope so. I certainly hope so. That is what I'm working toward. I hope you will all work toward it as well. 
Well, I hope so, too. And I want to thank you so much for the time that you've spent with me today. I cannot recommend your book enough, Fat Chance, Beating the Odds Against Sugar, Processed Food, Obesity, and Disease. If you want to know the real mechanism of the obesity epidemic in our country, this is the book to get. We have been speaking with Dr. Robert Lustig. He has spent nearly two decades treating childhood obesity and studying the effects of sugar on the central nervous system and metabolism. He is also featured in the new film called Fed Up, which is now available on DVD. In closing, I want to thank our listeners for joining us. I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And most of all, Dr. Lustig, I want to thank you for speaking out and being my guest. Um, My pleasure. Thanks for having me.